Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So in our Catechism class today, we want to think about the call of God upon the sinner's life. We call it the effectual call. Sometimes in Reformed circles, we speak about God's irresistible grace. We're going to consider three common misunderstandings which the Catechism will help us to get some clarity on. We're going to think about universalism, the idea that Christ's death is for all, so that all humanity must already be saved. We're going to look at decisional regeneration, where the call of God can be rendered ineffective by human indecision. And then lastly, we're going to look at semi-Pelagianism, where God has gone most of the way for us to be saved, but there is still something that we must do. Now, those are three very important issues, and with the help of our instructor in the Catechism, we're going to explore them today and see how they stand up in the light of biblical teaching. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So the first issue we want to deal with today is the issue of universalism. A popular politician in Northern Ireland had died, had died at quite a young age. And because he was one of those politicians who had turned from terrorism to some form of constitutional politics, he was greatly feted on the news and on the media. He was declared to be a peacemaker and a fine man. And the television and radio programmes celebrated his life and celebrated his atheism. For the man was a self-avowed atheist. A man who, by his own admission, had no time whatsoever for God or for any kind of religion. One programme on the radio brought on a Methodist minister who had served in a church in the politician's neighbourhood and who knew him quite well through community involvement. The interviewer mentioned the politician's lack of faith in God and asked the Methodist if he would be in heaven, not the Methodist, the politician. Oh yes, said the minister, no doubt of that, for although he was an atheist, he was a good man. So here's my question. Can an atheist without any faith or belief whatsoever die and go to heaven? That's a big question today. In Northern Ireland, it seems that the only thing that you have to do to get to heaven is to die. Since all men and women and boys and girls have inherited Adam's sinful nature, since all are under just condemnation because of their sins, 
are then we all saved, since Jesus has died and risen again? Are we not all the recipients of Christ's saving work? There certainly are those who think so. We call them universalists. They are people who think that Christ's death saves even those who are of different religions or none, that Muslims and Hindus and so on are going to be in heaven because they say Christ died for all men. Even atheists who don't believe in anything can be in heaven, they say, because Christ died for everyone. Now, our instructor in the Heidelberg Catechism deals with this very question. In Lord's Day 7 and Question 20, he asked the question, Are all men then saved by Christ, as they have perished in Adam? And the answer we must give is no, only those who by true faith are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Salvation is for those who by true faith are engrafted into Christ and receive thereby the benefits of his saving work upon the cross. ago I was asked a question. A man said I was at a service where the preacher spoke in Genesis 6 and verse 3 and he told us that while God might be calling us for salvation today he might never do that again and that if we cross the line we may then never be saved. He said we had to decide for Christ right now before the Spirit ceases to strive with us. He then said this seems a lot different from what you teach about sovereign election and the saving work of Christ on the cross for his people, his elect. So let's think about that problem for a minute. Let's find out the importance of biblical context and simple understanding the Bible. It's a common practice among modern evangelicals to lift a single line from that text, my spirit shall not always strive with man, and then use that as a proof text to teach us that while God is calling you right now, he may not be calling you to salvation tomorrow. And of course that is completely alien to the biblical teaching that God has chosen and redeemed his people, and who can resist his will, as we read in Romans chapter 9 and verse 19. In contrast to this, when you read that line in context, actually just when you read the whole verse, you will find that it teaches nothing of the sort. The verse is given in the context of God's judgment upon all of mankind, not a single sinner. And that's backed up by the last part of the verse, where God restricts the length of time a man can live on this earth to 120 years. That applied then. And you can see the difference that this makes. God is not going to tolerate the sin of mankind 
forever. He's going to judge them for their sins, and he does so by sending a flood, and by saving those who have been made righteous by faith in him and have entered the ark. The application for this, of course, is that God is immutable, that God does not and cannot change, that he must still judge the sin of mankind, that there is a day of judgment coming for us all, and we, like Noah, must have faith in God, so that we can be safe on that dreadful judgment day. So the verse has nothing at all to do with the urgency of making our decision for Christ nor with the false notion that God can call you and will call you to be saved today and completely abandon you tomorrow. The probation of man does end, but it ends with death. And there's always room at the cross for a repentant sinner who will come by faith alone. Our instructor in the Catechism teaches us this, telling us that only those who by true faith are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits, are saved. Those whom God has called to be his will always be saved, for he regenerates them by his Spirit. He gives them the gift of faith so that they will repent of their sins and they will trust him. But sometimes the objection that I hear to this biblical doctrine of the effectual call of God's elect, that God calls his people, his elect to himself, and that they will surely come, is framed something like this. Someone will say, but surely salvation is for the whosoever. It's not just for the elect, for Jesus has died for all mankind to offer us salvation and it's up to us to take it or to leave it, and you will hear that quite often preached in pulpits. Now the person who believes this will often go on to quote John 3 and 16. In fact, I know of one evangelical church whose website, at least for a time, had a tab, had a web page called Statement of Faith. And when you click the link to read the Statement of Faith to see what the church believed, all that it actually contained was the words of John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know, when proof-texting this verse, when putting this verse forward out of context like that, evangelicals seem to overstress the word whatsoever quite often. That's not even grammatical. The word whosoever in the verse has an inbuilt modifier. That whosoever is conditional upon belief on the part of the one who would experience Christ's forgiveness. It is not whosoever, it is whosoever believeth. Jesus confirms this in John 6 and 44 when he says, No one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Or rather, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the whosoever believeth is not really a problem, unless you just ignore the modifier, which is per exegesis. There's another wee problem with this theory, this theory that we call semi-Pelagianism. 
whosoever will actually won't. We're taught in Scripture that in our unregenerate state we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people can't make a decision to come to life. The state of deadness precludes that decision. In contrast, the verse comes immediately after Christ's teaching to Nicodemus on being born again. By any stretch of the imagination, birth is not for the whosoever. Birth is something that we have no choice in, no control over whom our parents are. The date of our birth, our nationality, our status, our gender, none of those things are within our control. Birth is not something we choose to do. An equally valid translation of the words born again is born from above. That gives us a sense of that birth being the willful act of our Father. It is for this very reason that our instructor emphasises that we must be engrafted into Christ, so that only those who by true faith are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits are saved. The language used here is highly symbolic. My late grandfather was a foreman gardener with Belfast Parks Department. He seemed to have a great love for roses. He planted a terrace of standard roses right around the side of the house where he lived. Many of them were special varieties, bred from engrafted plants. He designed them. He purposed them. He melded them into a parent tree to which they did not belong. And only because he had chosen them, they grew and they flourished and they blossomed. Paul uses an illustration like this too in Romans chapter 11 and verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild tree, a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thy boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off and thou standest by faith. So the gardener who engrafts a branch onto a tree is taking the initiative, just as our God and Saviour is doing when he chooses his people and brings them to faith in him. Furthermore, our sinful rebellion against God affects every part of our person. Our bodies and our minds and our emotions, our will are all ruined by sin. We are incapable of comprehending God's means of salvation. Thinking ourselves to be righteous, we go about parading our own good works, telling everyone how worthy we are, what good people we are, unless we are actually awakened to our true state by the Holy Spirit. We will never accept that we need a Saviour and we will never turn to Christ. As sinners, we neither have the will or the ability respond to the call of the gospel in our own strength or by our own decision. But God loves the world, doesn't he? In my opinion, the really difficult part of John 3 and 16 is the reference to God's love for the whole world, that he gave his only son. 
Was Christ's death for everyone in the whole world? If so, are all people saved, since Jesus died for all? Well, obviously not. Otherwise, hell would be empty. Or is God not sovereign? Is it that he wants to save us, but that he hasn't enough strength to do so? Why read more into this than is necessary? To say world in a non-Christian context would simply imply the earth, the planet upon which we live. The Greek word translated as world in John 3 and 16 is simply the word cosmon, the word from which we get our word cosmos. It could also simply mean the created world, the earth, the universe. Some may attempt to argue that Christ's death was not for trees and animals and soil and the created order it was for people. And that's very true in that mankind is God's special creation, the pinnacle of his creative activity. But be in no doubt that the whole creation is deeply impacted by its creator's death and resurrection. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul is telling us that God loved his creation, and that it too one day will be redeemed. Indeed, there will one day be a new heaven, and there will be a new earth. But is this the primary meaning of the text? When Jesus was speaking about how a sinner may enter the kingdom of God, is there not a more contextual application of the verse? Here's what I think the solution is. And I don't insist that anyone here agrees with me in this. I think that the belief expressed in the Heidelberg Catechism is that Christ's death is sufficient for all the sins of all mankind, but that it is efficient only for those who are his by election from before the foundation of the world. In other words, that the fullness of God's wrath for every sin, whatever and whenever, was laid upon Jesus at the cross, that he bore it for us. That's one of the reasons why our Redeemer had to be divine. No mere man could have borne that awful heavy burden. Remember back to question 17. Question 17 asks, Why must he also be true God? And the answer is that by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. But how is that atoning work on the cross applied to our hearts? Only by grace, through faith in Christ. And since grace cannot be earned or deserved, And since faith is the very gift of God, then only those whom God has chosen can receive forgiveness for sins obtained by Christ at the cross. So the catechist is quite correct when he tells us that only those 
who by true faith are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits, are saved. This satisfies texts like 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 to 2, where John writes, My little children, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteousness, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Christ's death is sufficient for every sin in every age by every person. Such was the burden that he bore at Calvary. But it is only efficient. It only works for those who are his by election from before the foundation of the world. So today we have learned that God saves us through Christ's death on the cross alone, through his grace by faith alone. In our next lesson, we'll ask the question, what is true faith? I'll see you next time.